0: Hi, entrepreneistas, it's Steph here. And I want to be sure you've had the opportunity to reserve your ticket to our Entreprenista Founders Weekend for our Wealth and Wellness Retreat presented by Chase Inc. We will be hosting our event at the Ritz-Carlton in Orlando, Florida from May 3rd to May 5th. And you are definitely going to want to be there with us. This is going to be your opportunity to build relationships with some of the most powerful women in business. And I can share with you firsthand that the best business relationships are formed when we really get together in person. And I just know so much business magic is going to happen when we're all together from educational panels, networking activities, to wellness activations, inspiring keynotes and breakout sessions. This is going to be a weekend you are not going to want to miss. So you can reserve your ticket today over at entreprenista.com forward slash Founders Weekend. We only have a few tickets left, so be sure that you reserve yours today. That's entreprenista.com forward slash Founders Weekend. I cannot wait to see you there.
1: I thrive with making my own schedule. I always say like I could retire right now and be busy all day for the rest of my life.
0: Nicole Kogan is the founder of No Bread, a popular food and wellness blog, and she's an active angel investor. Nicole had the idea for No Bread while working at her corporate job when she needed to attend client dinners while maintaining her gluten free diet. After a vacation in LA, she was inspired to take the leap full time into building No Bread. Years later, she now has combined her passions for food, wellness, and finance into angel investing and consulting. Tune in to hear how she grew her lifestyle brand and how you can begin to angel invest in 2023. Coming up, why Nicole started a business instead of going to business school. She shares her advice for influencers on how to diversify their income. Nicole's process to monetize no bread and tips when hiring an agent and finally her leap into angel investing and how you can get started too. Nicole, we are so thrilled to finally sit down and have this conversation with you. I was going back to try to figure out how we initially connected, and I think it was actually through Instagram DMs.
1: Do you remember? (laughs) Yeah. Did I? Probably like stalked you down. I tend to do that when I want to connect with people.
0: (laughs) It is possible. I think that's what it was because I went back and looked at my messages. But I have to tell you, Nicole, I have personally met some of my closest friends in life and in business Through Instagram, through social media, and it really is such an amazing way to connect with people who you might not have had the opportunity to reach out to. So thanks for sliding into the TFs. I I know, of course.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's one of those things where like back in the day when it's like you'd like stalk down someone's email and you had to be so professional in reaching out to them, even if they were a peer. And now it's just like, slide into the DMs. Yeah, (laughs) just just send the DM.
0: I'm always thinking of uh, T-shirts. right? Send the DM, just do it. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well,
0: I would love, before we get into all of the incredible things you're doing today, I would love if you could share more about your career journey and really what led you
1: to where you are today. Yeah, so my background is I'm from New York. I live out in Los Angeles now. I went to Cornell for school. I was, you know, typical Northeaster kid where I was gonna go into finance. And like you kind of just think that's the only thing out there for you. So went to Cornell, majored in business, was in all the business programs. I taught managerial and financial accounting at Cornell. I was like ultimate math nerd, got a job at JP Morgan. And when I was at JP Morgan, you know, it was a great job, but I just knew that there was more out there for me in this life. And I always just encourage people to know that there's more. It's always like, do what you want to be doing. So when I was at J.P. Morgan, I didn't feel fulfilled. And I was diagnosed with my celiac disease back when I was at Cornell. And so much of my job at J.P. Morgan was client entertaining that I was always out to eat. I was always getting sick and I couldn't take it anymore. So I started this spreadsheet at J.P. Morgan with Restaurants I was going to, because I'm so type A, like take the most type A person, you know, amplify it and you have me. <laughs> so I was like, had my food list, what I could eat at each restaurant. Did I get sick? How I felt? All this stuff. And that was the basis of No Bread, which became my career and my passion was this Excel sheet that made its way around the office and turned into what it is today. At what point did you decide to quit your job? So I was 24, 24. And I kind of had, well, it's funny because I live in LA now and I went to LA for a weekend and I met all these people and no one worked a nine to five, but everyone was like successful and like doing their thing, not worried, stress-free. And I just like loved it. And that was what really made me realize like, you don't have to just do this. And so I was 24 when I started No Bread and I was like, you know what, by the time I'm 25, like you're still young enough to really take a risk. I don't have money right now. So post 25, I really want to start like making monies. But right now, you know, I can take that chance. And it just, as I was doing No Bread, I was writing restaurant reviews every day after work, constantly going to restaurants with my job so that I could have content to feature on my new blog that only my mom knew about. But I was obsessed with this. And I was at that point where, my peers were going back to business school. And I still to this day, like I have really no regrets in my life. But one thing I'm like, oh, I wish I had gone to like Harvard business school. I just think that's so cool. Again, I'm like a nerd. So I was, you know, do I go back to business school or what if I make my own business school and take two years instead of paying money to go somewhere, I'll just make no money and figure my life out with this blog. Cause like, I'm so obsessed with it. Whatever this is, is going to be something, but I have no idea. And I'm not going to know until I leave here and see what it can be. And so I went to LA had this crazy weekend, like, you know, I was 24 and thriving, (laughs) flew back. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to quit. This is May. And I was like, I'm going to quit at the year end, get my bonus and quit. And I just walked into the office that day and quit. In May? Yeah.
0: Or you waited until the end of the year?
1: Yeah, I didn't wait because I was just like so enthused. I was like, we got to do this now. Like, And the foodie scene, so No Bread is obviously a food blog. And Instagram was just becoming a thing. I had like, I think like, a couple thousand followers when I quit. So this isn't like I quit with a hundred thousand followers. I quit with, like, I remember my boss followed me and he was like, Whoa, I'm your 8,000 follower. Like, I didn't have, like, Instagram was just becoming a thing. What year was this? this is 2014.
0: 2014. Okay. So super early getting into the influencer space.
1: Yeah. And to anyone who like remembers, you know, the era of like this popping off was when New York, especially everyone had a food account. Mm -hmm. All the foodies were like blowing up. The food porn was becoming a thing. Buzzfeed, Daily Meal, Tastemate were all blowing up. So I was like, if I wait here until the end of the year, like someone else is just going to do this. So I just walked in and quit. I had been telling my parents for about six months like this is gonna happen and they know me I'm like super independent super passionate so they were like there's no stopping her like she's gonna quit Let's just be on board
0: what did it feel like that day when you actually walked in and said I'm leaving
1: okay so here's something funny I am like tough like business girl and I try my I would like to think I'm very kind. I'm very sensitive. So I walked in and I was like, all right, shoulders back. Like I, whenever I get pep talks, I tell everyone like, shoulders back, like walk in there and you know, don't show how you really feel. Like you got this. I walk in and I am sobbing. <laughs> I like take my first boss aside, sobbing. I've actually never told this story before. I take the first boss aside and I tell him and I am like crying. He doesn't even know what I'm saying. He's like, Do you need like a what's going on? And just sobbing. I take the and I'm like, okay. Cry, got my tears out. I go to the next boss. These are like men, right? Like older men who run J.P. Morgan, and I go to the next boss. I go, okay, got my tears out. And he's like, "Hey, Nicole, what's going on?" And I'm like sobbing again. And I am like, "What is wrong with me?" Because <laughs> I had like so much. I think it was a mix of like love for what it wasn't like I hated J.P. Morgan. I like I liked it. I just didn't feel passionate. So I felt guilty for leaving. I felt excited, and I was as I quit. I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, I don't have a job anymore. Like, this is crazy for someone as type A as me who like, I didn't need to work in college. I was very lucky with that. But like, I did anyway. Like, I am a worker. And now I'm like, what I just do?
2: I can really relate to you. I also grew up in New York, studied business, went into finance after I graduated. And had the same feeling as you, that there was something more out there for me. And I really wanted to follow my passion, which at the time, and it still is, is social media. And I quit as well. I didn't cry when I quit, but I was definitely very scared and didn't want to tell anyone what I was going to do next because I had no idea if it was going to work. And like you, I gave myself time to figure it out, except I didn't give myself two years. I gave myself three months, <laughs> but thankfully mm-hmm. it it worked out. And whenever Stephanie and I tell our story about, you know, what happened next after we quit, I always talk about that first week. So you quit on whatever day it is. What was the next day like for you? What was the next week like for you? How did you approach yeah. not having to go into an office each day?
1: So once I did it and like pulled the trigger, it was pure freedom. But again, most type A person ever, I was like hit the ground running. Like I was like, okay, with JP Morgan, I feel like I have two full-time jobs. I'm at my job all day and then I try and hit a dinner at night so I can go and review it. At this point, restaurateurs were reaching out to me. Chefs were reaching out to me. Gluten-free was so not a thing that chefs while I was there was asking me, what ingredients to use on their pasta dishes. They were. Wow. I was like, maybe I'll become a restaurant consultant. So like now, right now, like where we were that day, the world is now my oyster. Like I can go any which direction. So I'm going to see them all. So if anything, I went from like super busy to crazy busy because I was like, do I want to become a phenomenal, like Danny Myers, right-hand woman and like be his person and run restaurant groups? Do I want to- work for infatuation and write blogs, but I'm going to keep pushing all of those ideas forward until one of them sticks out. And that's the one that I'll do. So if anything, it was like freedom at first, like I thrive with making my own schedule. I always say like, I could retire right now and be busy all day for the rest of my life. I'm a doer. So there's other things to do. And yeah, so that Really, right away, I just started doing a whole bunch of different things. Granted, it was unpaid and seeing which things made sense, which didn't, and just kind of like running with it.
0: What were the things that made sense that you started to focus on?
1: I knew that my core would be this gluten-free restaurant guide. And instantly, I was being featured. Everyone always says, like, what made you take off. And I was very, very lucky because gluten-free was becoming such a thing, even more than social media, like traditional PR was still a huge thing. If you were gluten-free and you were writing for anything, like Good Housekeeping reached out to me and you heard about what I was doing, like that writer felt an immediate connection to me and wanted to talk about me, even if it was for like a magazine that it could have been like Nylon magazine. And they wanted to feature me because that person felt connected to me. And I was truly the first person that was like solving this, what is gluten-free thing for people. So that is what was the original takeoff for me and just started getting featured in publications after publication. And that's kind of where it grew. So originally I was just going to be, you know, this gluten-free restaurant guide. And I saw all of New York wanted to write about it and talk about it. So I was like, you know what? We need to have this in every city. So I love LA. I flew to LA. I was like, we need to have No Bread LA. I want No Bread Chicago. I want No Bread Boston. And I created a team of interns and really maximize unpaid interns and was giving college credit. Like I registered as a corporation at this point and I had little teams of college students writing in all their cities. So No Bread was just gonna be this like, huge restaurant guide. And so I went down that path, but that path was still not making me money. And it was almost my two-year mark. And that's when I realized, like, how do we monetize this?
2: That was going to be my question to you. At what point did you start to monetize and what were those strategies?
1: So this is really funny. And I tell the story to anyone I can to inspire them to always know your worth. So it was, I believe, B-A-I drinks, like buy. Remember they had this, yes. like, they blew up. And someone reached out to me from there and goes, hey, like, you know, unprompt, I didn't ask them. They said to me, like, how much? So I never even knew this was an option. They're like, how much to post on your social media? At this point, maybe I had, like, you know, 20,000 followers. I don't know. And um, I look at, you know, my mom. And I. Had this a friend of mine from New York named Lindsay was doing my – helping me with PR at the time. Her name's Lindsay Hubbard. She's now become this like huge sensation in New York too, which is really cool. But she, and I I looked at her and I was like, okay, like what should I charge? Like a hundred bucks, you know? And she goes, charge a thousand. And then I was like, I can't do that. Like, what do you mean? I was like, so scared. And then I was like, I think we settled on saying 500. And she was like, okay, I mean, just charge, like say 500, But I was willing to downplay myself to like nominal. And you hear, I remember hearing an interview with like Charlie D'Amelio when she first blew up and was like, I'm going to get paid $30 to do this. Or everyone doesn't know what to ask for. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, the person asking you doesn't really know what they want to give you yet. They're kind of waiting for you to to hear from you what you even cost. So I, I just like sacked up and was like, $500. And they're like, okay. And I was like, ugh could have charged a thousand. So, business me went into overdrive with that. I did that post and then I was like, "All right, we are going to hit anyone." And I also knew, you know, these gluten-free brands are young and new, who's old and established. Cheerios was one of my first people at the time because they were starting to talk about gluten-free and I don't really consider them the best gluten-free product out there at by any means these days, but at the time, I was like, "We got to go bigger because they have budget." And we got to see, you know, who's going to pay me. And then the big moment for me was Stoli alcohol was coming out with Stoli gluten-free. And they signed me. So this was like year one made no money. Six months into year two now, I'm like, I got to make money. My parents are starting to ask me what I'm doing. And it happened like this because I just – Saw it and went with it, and then within those six months, I got Stoly and big names, and I became the gluten-free face of a few brands. and I was like, This is where we go. That
2: is definitely very interesting. And at Social Fly, we work with a lot of influencers, so we're definitely very familiar with the wide range of fees out there and and how people price. How do you determine your fees now, and what do your partnerships look like?
1: So now I have a manager, I took them on, I'm with Neon Rose, I took them on, not right away, like once it got to the point, maybe 2018, where I couldn't do it all, I can't, and that's the biggest thing as an entrepreneur, whether you're starting your own brand, just being an influencer, whatever it may be, that point where you can't do it all and trusting someone else to do it better than you. Because even when I had those interns working for me, I was like, yeah, I can still do it better myself. I just can't be everywhere. So now I have this amazing management team. And I was screwed over twice early on by quote managers. And then Erin from Neon Rose like really built trust with me first before I committed to her. She worked with me on like a non-exclusive basis for a year. So just, they do all my partnerships now, and which is great because it gives me more freedom to go be creative, to go work on my investing, to go do... No bread has now shifted. I do not have a restaurant guide anymore at all. I'm just the, you know, a wellness person showing my gluten-free favorite lifestyle things. So it gave me, having a team allows me to create more, find really where I want to focus my attention.
0: Up next, Nicole's new career path in angel investing. Hey, entrepreneurs! it's Steph here. As a founder, or really as a woman in business who is creating their own success, whether you're just starting a business or you're scaling it, dealing with finances and money can often feel very overwhelming and intimidating. We have all been there. But according to fellow entrepreneurista and personal finance expert, Varnoosh Tarabi, that fear can surprisingly be very helpful for your future success and wealth. Furnoosh is the host of the So Money podcast and the author of the best-selling book, A Healthy State of Panic. She gets candid about all things finance with leading business experts every Friday on her podcast. And she dives deeper into the nine biggest fears that hold us back both professionally and personally in her latest book, including rejection, loneliness, fear of missing out and failure to name a few. She offers a wealth of knowledge and tackles the relatable feelings we all experience about money. So you are definitely going to want to subscribe to her podcast. And if you want to meet Farnoosh live and in person, be sure to join us at our Entreprenista Founders Weekend event from May 3rd to May 5th at the Ritz-Carlton in Orlando. Farnoosh will be speaking and she cannot wait to connect with you. You can reserve your ticket at Entreprenista.com forward slash Founders and we will see you there.
2: The business behind being an influencer is just so fascinating for me, especially because, like I said, at Fly, we work with so many influencers ranging from, you know, a few thousand followers all the way to having millions of followers. And what I would love to know is in your path to being this very successful person who has a, such tremendous influence, what would you say the biggest challenges
1: were? When you, when you have a steady job... The highs and lows you experience, there's a range because, you know, you can have a really bad day, but you're still getting a paycheck. You can have a really great day, but you're not like fulfilled with where you are. There's a range. I would say that the biggest challenge for me was realizing that on my own, the highs and lows are way more extreme and managing those. You really need to stay balanced because if you're living up here that's unrealistic. And if you're down here, you can feel way worse. This is like, oh my God, I'm gonna be poor forever. I'm not gonna make it. Some all everyone else is better than me. And this is give up, give up, give up. So learning how to stay in the middle by and you know, I'm a huge, if you follow my page, like self-care. My fiance makes this joke that I have a recovery routine bigger than LeBron because <laughs> he'll like call me and I'll be like, oh, I'm on my way to the sauna or the hyperbaric or this and i'm like but i'm so busy oh my god but like that is a priority like mm-hmm. you know staying grounded so i would say that was the biggest challenge just like finding that grounding place
0: take me back to there was a few moments or a few times when instagram went down over the past few years take me back to some of those moments what happened for you in your business what did it feel like when instagram crashed?
1: So those days when Instagram crashes, and then everyone posts memes about influencers freaking out, I've always joked. And I shouldn't say joke, but I feel very, very confident that if Instagram goes away, I still have a thriving business. And I've learned to not put all of my eggs in one basket. So what the people see on a day to day is Nicole has no bread. But you know, I can film a set of Instagram stories right now take five minutes. And now I still have 14 hours in my day to go do things. There's a lot of other things that I do. I think with any career, if you are working at JP Morgan, that's the only thing you have going on. You get fired. It's kind of the equivalent. So I've learned, I never wanted to be in a position where I'm a huge realist. Like The algorithm messes us up every day. It can feel so defeating out of our hands. I never want to be in a position where I feel job security, but I'm an entrepreneur. It's like the easiest, that's the number one thing you're going to feel or not feel. So on those days, huge bummer, you know, maybe like annoying if I have something I want to post, but if you are using Instagram for your business, it has to be Instagram and 10 other things for your business. And I've always really focused on having that. What are those 10 other things? Yeah, so for me, I have multiple social media platforms. I use Snapchat, TikTok. I don't use Facebook and Twitter anymore, but I once did, Pinterest. So I've narrowed it down over time, my blog. So it's just other having outlet, other outlets. I've started investing into companies early on and watching companies grow rather than, you know, a company paying me a paycheck to like post about their product. I'm like, let me give you a paycheck and really grow you from the bottom up. So I have my investing, which is a huge priority and passion of mine. And I've done other odd things over time, whether it's consulting for a brand, consulting for a restaurant, aiding on a one-off project, things like that. So I've always had other things going on.
0: How do you manage your time doing multiple things? Any tips and tricks
1: you can share? I think I'm one of those people that thrives doing multiple, like I don't do well being bored. Even if I'm bored, I'm like, let's go walk and be bored walking, but to do multiple things at, you know, during a day, if it's not in my calendar, it didn't exist. And my calendar is so detailed. I will put in like when I have to go pee, like I am like, you know, (laughs) drink drink water is need one liter. More of water goes in the calendar. And it's like my fiance doesn't have a calendar and, we're so we're like the complete opposites, but we always joke about it because it's so our personalities. He can like so go with the flow, and I am like, I need a schedule. But it just helps me put my priorities in order and make sure I'm allocating the right amount of time to all the different things that I do. Because if I commit to something, I commit with 100%. And if I can't, I'm the first person to tell you, I'm not going to do this with you. Love you. Can't do it. Don't have the time. So the calendar is my child.
2: For anyone interested in becoming an influencer, today? We know the algorithms have changed over time since you started. What tips would you give someone who's starting today?
1: Well, if anything, I think this is the time to start because the algorithms have changed to highlight newer creators. They're hurting people like me. And, you know, because my Instagram isn't my sole being anymore, I'm not as like pissed about that. So, I believe, I I forget who said it, maybe like Gary Vee or someone, but what you're supposed to be doing for all of these social media platforms is putting out like five pieces of content a day. And you can go from like 10,000 followers to 100,000 followers with one viral video. So it's seeing what hits and then putting that on all your platforms and cranking out similar content to that. It used to be up until this year. So as annoying as that is, because I want to continue to stay the most relevant in time. It's giving, if this was four years ago, I would always say, I'm like, who's going to start being a food blogger now? There's already the OG bloggers. We're going to be around for a while. If anything, like now's the time Just start spitting out content, like create, create, create. I'm at a point now where I don't really have much time to create because I do my other things. But if you're new and want to break into this, like pump out content. And you mentioned that you
2: ended up getting an agent and we know Neon Rose and they're wonderful, but at what point would you say an influencer should consider getting an agent and what's the process to finding one?
1: Yeah. So for me, it became back when you could ask me, hey, how much is it to post one static photo on your feed? And there was like one number. Mm -hmm. Then as all these social media platforms evolved, there's more platforms to worry about. Also, there's like whitelisting and ad usage and all these words that I don't know what they mean but you should be getting paid for but I have no idea how much that's when you trust the professional and for me I think that's when I really looked into it when I was like they can get me more money they can do this better than me uh, legal contracts I had to outsource to a lawyer that's you know either an hourly rate or 5% of the fee it's just too much when you feel you're like, you're at the point where you can't do it if you're small and growing, don't do it yet. I promise you, do not do it yet. Keep growing authenticity. And as I said with that first instance where I said 500 and I was only in charge of 100, like throw out high numbers, see what sticks. But as it gets more complicated, requests are super, you know, abundant, then look into it. And I would say my biggest piece of advice in finding an agent is see who reaches out to you. I- Got screwed over twice before finding Neon Rose because it was I sought them out. Mm. One was like a more Hollywood style one, and you know they have rep huge actresses. I was like bottom of the totem pole, and I should be. I get it. They had no interest in even helping me, but I was now legally contracted to them. I was just mm. too eager, so I waited for Aaron, who sought me out at a at Expo West, this big food convention. Mm. Like sat me down, talked to me, showed me around, and then was like, "Hey." non-exclusive, let me just bring you stuff. And then she proved herself to me. And I think if someone really wants to work with you, it's like dating. If someone wants to see you, they'll see you. If an agent wants to work with you, they'll make it known to you by like proving it to you.
0: That is such great advice. Thank you for sharing that, Nicole. I want to hear more about how you decided to get into the world of investing. How did that happen?
1: So getting into investing was a really cool full circle moment for me. My background at J.P. Morgan, I worked in equity sales, and a lot of what we did was the IPO roadshows, so a company like Facebook or Tesla would come to J.P. Morgan, contract with our bankers, and us as salespeople would go sell the deal, and I would sit in on these meetings, and I didn't really know what I was asking at the time, but I knew that there were certain things you had to like prompt investors to talk about and prompt the company to talk about, so I knew what investors wanted to know and what companies wanted to share. And what ultimately got me into investing was there's this woman, her name is Denise Lambertson, who I've always looked up to and she has a fund. She's a marketing, uh, she has a company that's called LMS. It's a marketing, but she also has a fund called Constellation. And we would always trade marketing ideas. Like who she would always ask, like who is paying me, you know, and that's where we'd see like who has good spending and where the trends are. We just talk about things like that. And then when she was, Launching her fund, I had an opportunity to invest in it. and I just trust her, and I think what she does is so great. So I wrote a check into the, her fund, and a fund is really cool because, contrary to angel investing, where you invest in one company, if they go under, you lose all your money. A fund will have like ten to twenty companies. If one goes down, you still have nineteen more to do well. So I really liked that as a good first investment, and I at this point, I had money to you know sitting on cash. I finally proven successful as an influencer. And I, my finance background and again, teaching finance, like financial accounting and all that back at Cornell, my biggest advice, especially to women is make your money work for you. And I was sitting on cash and I was like, okay, a fund is safer. And this is the sector I know. I know the name she's getting involved in. this was, it was a perfect Mm -hmm. first bit. And then once I did that and like this rush, I felt of pure, Like emotional career satisfaction. I was like, this is what I'm meant to be doing because I get this. Like, I see it. And that motivated me to start doing angel investing. And rather than investing into funds, I was investing into single companies who I just saw. I've been in the CPG world now for five years. I started in 2020, 2019, or 20 investing. So after five years of seeing market trends, I was like, I know who's going to be big and what we still need. And that's what led me to angel investing.
0: So how did you get started angel investing and finding your deals?
1: Yeah, I'm lucky with no bread that I have gotten to work with or connect or meet all these people in CPG. I am a huge trend analyzer because I would want to know like who's going to have budget to pay me, but with those trends I would also see who's going to be the next big thing and I definitely have a leg up where if I reach out to a CEO, they might already know who I am because of no bread and they're more apt to take my call. But what I've realized is that that's not really true, you can be anyone and reach out to like the way we were saying, like I stalked you down on social media to first connect with you, like DM the founder, tell them how obsessed you are with their company and you're looking for investment opportunities. And it truly just started with me linkedin and Instagramming founders. Do you have a structure now
2: or approach to how you handle angel investing? I recently heard from an entrepreneur that he writes 10, 10,000 dollar checks over the course of a year and he looks for XYZ types of companies. So what's your approach now?
1: I would say my approach was initially initially I know CPG so well so I was going to be my own little CPG fund. My check sizes range from I kind of have my own range of where I'm comfortable writing checks. But I've also learned that when you see a great opportunity, all rules go out the window. So if it's like not CPG and outside of my check range, I've done it. But in general, I look for super early stage and high growth. And I love getting in pre-seed or seed. But that's not my rule of thumb. It's more what I'm drawn to. And then I look at all like if recently I invested in a later stage company, but the terms were so good. They were actually off. They wanted to get more strategic women involved. They were offering last year's terms and it was later than I typically invest in and it's further along, but I was like, how cool. That's more of a safe bet where they might exit in two years versus companies that I'm in from the ground up might be like seven to 10 years. So I've taken on some of those opportunities, but in general, I would say early stage pre-seed and seed high growth.
0: And you also run SPVs now and invite other founders, influencers, women, people in your network to join in on some of the deals. What have been some of your learnings running these different SPVs?
1: The SPVs are truly the most rewarding part of all of this. It's a ton of work. I basically, for people who aren't familiar with the SPVs, let's say I did one for Partake, for example, on Doe instead of as the companies become later along, the founders don't have the time to constantly meet with angels. They're looking for bigger checks from VCs, but how cool if they can still get some angels, but they just don't have the time for those conversations. They're way further along in the growth. They have other things to be worrying about. So someone like me who's invested into the company super early on, they and knows the story of the brand inside and out. They give me an allocation to go raise from people. And I have found so much fun and reward in this because – a, I truly think my, my passion and purpose is encouraging other people, mainly women, to invest. People think it's a man's world. The cap table game is a man's world. That's a fact. And people don't even know it's an option until it's presented to them because most people don't know how to seek the opportunities. I feel like I've built this incredible network of people through my influencing days, other influencers from all stages of my life who love what I'm doing and want to be involved, but don't have the access. So I'm providing them the access. And it's been, I've done now three SPBs. I'm soon going to do a fourth, but it's just a great way to teach strategic friends to further their lives, make their money work for them. And definitely where I want to be focusing a lot of my attention going forwards and building that network of people who are curious about this as big as I can.
0: Yes, we are so aligned with your vision and mission. And it's one of the reasons why Courtney and I got into angel investing. And now with Pearl, we're definitely doing things that are are very similar and able to help support and collaborate together. And I agree with you. I mean, I think the biggest thing, especially for women who are looking to get into angel investing is really that education and then the access. So being able to have conversations like this on the podcast and share with everyone, you know, if you are looking for those opportunities and access, like reach out to you, Nicole, reach out to us. We are here to help provide these opportunities so we can get more women on these cap tables and we can support other founders. And hopefully everyone will make a lot of money because that's the goal. If we all make a lot of money, we can keep investing back in these women. Exactly. And ultimately maybe have our own funds one day too. And nothing bad happens if we're all making a lot of money and supporting all these amazing ladies.
1: (laughs) It's really interesting when you think of like competition. I have always, there's some people who keep their new investment so guarded because they want it to be their big ticket and not other people's. And the way I phrase it to anyone is like, okay, you can be rich and go on vacation, (laughs) we can all be rich and go on vacation together, you know, like sharing the wealth and bringing people in and building people up. And it's so much better that way. And that's what I really want to do is I don't want to keep my deals guarded to me. I want, especially if I bring in other influencers and strategic people into my funds, now my brands are doing better because there's more strategic people involved. So I just find like the glory in working together and uniting strategic people. And I think in a man's world, it's cut through. I watch it firsthand the way some, I've seen, you know, crazy things from my brands dealing with their VCs and the cutthroat world of venture capital. And I'm like, why? Get rid of that stigma. Like, let's all win together and go on vacations together.
0: I love that. That's my new model. Vacations together. I always say
1: the best way to sum it up.
0: Yeah. Collaboration over competition, because good things happen if we all collaborate. The more we can connect our networks and help everyone everyone can win and we all need to have that mentality. Yeah. Nicole, a few questions for you that I often hear from people that are just starting out investing. Can you explain exactly what angel investing is? What is an accredited investor? Average check size? Like give us all of the basics, especially for
1: beginners. Yeah. So the thing with investing is I would love to just tell everyone, like go start investing, but there are some like government mandated rules. Like you have to be an accredited investor. I'm going to butcher the rules of what that is, but you can easily search that online. One of the things that I believe your income has to be above $200,000 or between you and your partner has to be above. So there with that said, classic angel investing, you have to be an accredited investor. And let's say that you are, It's up to the brand if they want to set a minimum. If you're like friends and family round, like not even pre-seed, like the company is just becoming a thing and you're going to be in their friends and family round. At that stage, people are just looking for like $1,000. Like any form of check is helpful. A pre-seed, it's really mandated by the brand. I've had pre-seed people tell me like minimum $10,000, minimum $25,000, minimum $50,000. So that's where number one piece of advice is, You have to know that whatever you are investing, there is a strong chance you lose it. Like you can only invest what you are so comfortable with losing. Vegas money. Yeah. And I'm not trying to like, I remember someone said that to me and I was like, loser, I'm going to like, that's so not true. That's so discouraging. But like, it's true. You have to have a risk appetite for it. And um, so yeah, minimums are truly mandated by the brand. I would say, like twenty-five thousand dollars is what you hear a lot from brands, but like they'll take under if you just say it. And, and that's with a direct investment. Direct not through an investment. SPV. Yes. And then what's cool about an SPV is that if I'm running an SPV, I can set the minimum. And you know, typically I set like a ten thousand dollar minimum just because it's more annoying to have like fifty smaller checks and you know, then five big checks. So I would set it, but then I've had some where I've set no minimum and people put in $2,000. And that's amazing because I just want people to have access. So it just depends and it's very case by case, but SPVs are a great way to put in a smaller check through someone who's already vetted the company for you. And I do want to just
0: call out in terms of what the rules are with SEC for being an accredited investor. So it's $200,000 a year if you are single and individual and $300,000 a year if you are married. But there are other platforms out there where you do not have to be an accredited investor to invest. So there's platforms like Seed Invest and crowdfunding platforms where Many of those platforms you do not have to be accredited and the minimum investment is typically $1000 and you can go on those platforms and search those deals see if there is any brands that you connect to and feel you know excited about and there is a significant amount of due diligence that has to be done to have a company up on a platform where you do not have to be an accredited investor. So you can know that like significant due diligence has been done. But again, Vegas money, this is money you have to yeah. be willing to lose. But no, there is an opportunity for substantial gain. Hopefully. Exactly. <laughs> Coming up, Nicole shares her best piece of advice that she learned from her dad. All right, Nicole, this is our favorite segment. We're really going to get to know you now. We are going to ask you a few rapid fire questions. So the first word or words that come to your mind, are you ready? Oh, I love this. Yeah. Describe yourself
1: in three words. Nice, calm, spontaneous. Coffee or tea? Matcha.
0: What is your favorite app on your phone that you cannot live without?
1: Email
2: best business tool that has helped you grow your business?
1: Well, other than Instagram, InShot, which is how I edit my videos. Oh, I don't know about that one.
0: Yeah. All right. Final rapid fire. Do you have a hidden talent? Oh, gosh. Yeah, no. I wish I did. How about this? What is something our listeners would be surprised to find out about you?
1: Oh, I had a hidden talent. I'm super flexible. It's like eerie. I can my arms go like all the way behind things like that. (sighs) Were you a yeah. gymnast, cheerleader, dancer? No, I do. I don't know. I'm just like freakishly bendy. <laughs> See, you have one. You have a hidden talent. Yeah, there, that hit me. Yeah.
2: <laughs> All right. Back to our regular questions. You mentioned self-care at some point in this conversation. What are some of your favorite ways to unwind at the end of a day?
1: So I am currently fuming over how dark it gets early because my fiance and I go for a nightly walk. And it truly just like shuts my brain off. Mm -hmm. And it's so nice. It just sucks to do it now that it's dark at four. But end of day walks are so important and amazing. And, you know, end of day, I love to cook. Just like all common grounding activities.
0: Daylight savings is like literally the worst thing ever. Like of Truly. everything that's been canceled, I don't know why it hasn't. And I I, know. Did, I did just hear that there was something that was passed to no in like LA. End it, it was like
1: passed, and then where did it, it happens every year? People freak out. Oh my god, it's getting yeah. canceled, and then it's still here.
0: <laughs> I heard, but this has to be verified. So for everyone listening, this is not verified yet. But I swear I heard that after the next one, like what is it in March when? we, what, set the clocks back again, that spring it's going to stay like fall that. Back. Oh, wait, spring forward. So yeah, so once we spring forward, that we're not going to fall back again. I heard it's is the last time, but I don't know if it's true. I, I mean, just really hope. <laughs> I know, I hope. A girl can hope. Do you have a mantra or quote that you just live your life
1: by? My dad's is always ask, he always said what got him ahead was he would always ask one extra question. And I've, you know, stolen that from him. And it's true because, you know, whether you're being bashful and not asking something because you think someone's going to say no, like ask it. What's the worst? They say no, you know, so I truly have tried to live by that. That's great. We've heard a
2: lot of answers to this question and that one is definitely very, very unique. Where can everyone find opportunities to invest in your SPVs? What's next? Do you have a company in mind?
1: Yeah. So you can contact me. My blog is NoBread.com. There's a contact page, Nicole at NoBread.com. Very easy email. And also on Instagram at NoBread. Just send me a message. I am planning in the early stages of planning on coming out with a course this year about all of this with the result being that you become in my SPV network and access to deal flow. So that is going to be my big project of January, 2023. So I would love for anyone who's interested in investing, who wants to start learning about it, to contact me now so you can be the first to have all of those resources. And I'm very excited about that because it's absolutely where my
0: passion is. Well, we will link out to all of your contact info in the show notes below. Nicole, mm-hmm. final question for you. What does being an entrepreneurista mean to you?
1: An entrepreneurista to me is having complete and total confidence and passion within yourself to make whatever you want to work, work. If you love something enough and work hard at it, you will do it. And it's just having that confidence and passion and faith in yourself to do it.
0: I could not agree anymore. Nicole, thank you so much for sharing your journey, your story. We are so excited to continue to collaborate with you on all the things from social to investing. And so glad that you slid into my DMs and we uh, we made this happen. So thank you again for being here. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entrepreneista.com and connect with us on Instagram at Entrepreneistas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entreprenista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to Entreprenista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead. Founders are always asking us what has been the secret to our success building multiple seven-figure businesses? Do you want to know how it's our community? We created the entrepreneurista league for founders like you, our members have access to everything we've used to grow our businesses over the past 10 plus years to learn more and get on the wait list for when doors are open. Again, head over to entrepreneurista.com that's entrepreneurista.com to get on the wait list.